Ash is king. Ash is king. Welcome to the MEM podcast and um, today we finally, finally have the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. CJ Skender. Kevin Gonkel is here with me and um, we are very, very excited to uh, have this episode today. CJ, glad to have you here. I'm delighted to be here. Let me All start right. off by saying cash is king. There we go. There we go. Uh, we start with a classic uh, CJ quote and um, yeah, what we have a ton of questions for you, so let's just uh, jump right let's in, I jump guess. Jump right into it. Um, so I guess the first question is, uh, we just want to know your kind of career progression uh, from Lehigh to accounting to Duke right here to in this chair right now. How did it all shape out? Well, when I was in college, I went to Lehigh as yeah. an undergrad, and I wanted to be a rock and roll disc jockey. That was my career aspiration. But I was majoring in accounting, and I did pretty well okay. in accounting and finance there. And um, I guess between my junior and senior year, I was having dinner in the summer with my mom. And she said, what are you going to do when you graduate? And I said, I'm going to work for a radio station. Like the starting um, hirees would do like a midnight to five show <coughs> to get paid, you know, between five and $6,000 a year. Yeah. And you could go to the junior high dances and hit on all the eighth and ninth grade <laughs> girls. I had no intentions of doing that, of course, of course. but yeah. um, she just started crying, you see, tears streaming down her face. Well, maybe the disc jockey thing isn't the way to go. So the way I analyzed it was that if I worked uh, for an accounting firm, um, I could easily go from there into being a disc jockey versus if I started out as a disc jockey, it would probably be very hard to get in with an accounting firm. Yeah, that, so, that on your resume is going to look a little bit different. It's di it is different. Yeah. It's like, to me, that would be fun. You know, you're playing records in a booth probably like this. People are calling from, you know, whatever county that you're in. And, um, you know, to me, that was exciting as a 20, 21-year-old person. But I, I graduated, took a job with Haskins and Sells. Back in, in the 60s and the 70s, there were eight large accounting firms. They were called the Big Eight. Uh, now they're called the Big Four. Uh, Arthur Anderson, Bitterberry, there were some combinations. Um, now Haskins and Sells, in, in my third year there, they became Deloitte Haskins and Sells. About a decade later, they became Deloitte and Touche. Now they're just known as Deloitte. Um, they're one of the big four, Ernst and Young, they go by EY, as uh, another one, KPMG, and then PricewaterhouseCoopers. Um, I had to laugh when they were doing the Oscars, and uh, he mentioned about, that's uh, Waterhouse under the bridge. <laughs> kind of a, a clever line there. That I, I mentioned it to one of my old students who works for PwC up in Milwaukee, and uh, he didn't comment, so I guess he didn't find that <laughs> as funny as I did. But but I worked for uh, three years in um, the accounting field as an auditor. I never really felt like I was helping people. I mean, we were. You know, when the IRS shows up at your door, they said, we're here to help you. <laughs> Auditors were really, you know, helping the company, the firm. But I would, you know, as a, a new person... Um, you know, I deal with you know, middle-aged women, and I tried so hard to be nice to them or to, you know, find out about their husband, their kids, whatever, so that we could have a conversation. But I think there was this fear that I was going to find something and they were going to lose their job. Yeah. And so there was always some sort of, um, it, it was tough. And I, I never felt, you know, I'd, I'd leave at night and I'd think, well, I didn't make anybody happy today. I didn't make anybody laugh today. Um, you know, I would go home sort of feeling empty. Mm -hmm. Deep down inside, I knew that I was, you know, adding value and providing something. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> I started teaching a class. When I came um, to Duke, 
my wife and I got married. She got pregnant on our wedding night. Um, everybody's like, you can't go, you know, you see if you can get your old job back and go back and work for them because now you're going to be a father and you have responsibilities. And, and my wife and her dad were the only two that were really supportive, saying, yeah, this is the time to do it. Go back to school when you're young, get that. And so I came down for an interview, talked to the director of admissions and said, hey, can I you know, work at somebody's TA in grade papers? And he says, just a minute. And he left the room and came back like three or four minutes later with a, an accounting book. And he said, how would you like to teach the undergrads <laughs> at Duke? Sure. And I wouldn't have gotten into Duke uh -huh. as an undergrad. Um, there, was, there was just an article in the Wall Street Journal. This is 1979. There was just an article in the Wall Street Journal about how terrific the Duke undergrads were and how they were this mix of you know, wonderful scholars, and and I just looked at him and I said, you want me to teach at Duke? <laughs> I was like flabbergasted. And he says, yeah, do you think you're up for it? And I said, well, give it a shot and see how it goes. And I spent most of the summer reading and rereading, and, you know, I learned this stuff so much better than I knew it as a student. The first day I walked into class and I said, hey, you know, in the last nine months, um, got married, got pregnant, you know, left a job, had a kid, and um, you know, here I am today, and they, they gave me like a standing ovation. <laughs> uh, I, I think it was because of being a new father, but it was just like a nice thing. And every day when I would leave, I would always feel like so good, like I helped somebody, I did mm -hmm. something good for somebody. So I taught while I was doing the MBA program, and then in my second semester uh, of, of the second year, there was a fellow taking a leave of absence, and they asked if, uh, you know, I would substitute for him for a year. And so I basically postponed getting a real job. I just said, I'll teach for you. <laughs> okay. And, you know, that was you know, almost 40 years ago. And uh, I'm still teaching. Just, you know, so... It wasn't really a, I, I really want to teach. This is what yeah. I want to do with my life. It was like every year, you know, some set of classes came up. I was asked to teach them, and I did them. So there wasn't any, you know, master plan mm -hmm. where you know, I'm going to be a teacher. I mean, when I was in, you know, grade school and middle school and high school, I thought it would be great to be a coach and a teacher because you know, a lot of the the people that I admired were yeah. you know, coaches and teachers at the high school. And I thought, hey, this would be good to be a junior high you know, coach and a teacher. So um, that part was always there. Mm -hmm. um, my son always says to me, my oldest son, if I would have stayed in public accounting, I'd now right. be retired. You know, that they usually yeah. you know, yeah. move the people out when they're in their mid-50s or so. And I'm like, you know, I've seen a lot of those guys and, and they're looking for something to do. Mm -hmm. You know, they yeah. either start a new firm. Alternatively, you know, they'll go teach. I mean, there's a handful of them that are teaching at various places around. Um, but, you know, for me, it's just been a perfect, a perfect fit. I like mm -hmm. doing it. I, I, the, the students really make everything worthwhile. Yeah. Um, they care. They, <clears throat> we think it was a good career choice. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. We think you've done a great job at it. We, I, I think if you find something that you really like to do, you're going to be good at it. I think you would have been a world-famous disc jockey as well, but uh, but the teaching profession... I still have to go through that uh, song list that you sent us, uh, that you gave us, like, on the last day of class. Like, I've, yeah. I've gone through a couple on the... So I found a few of them on the flight back home, but then, yeah. One of those should be the intro songs to... That's not a bad idea. To this, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I gotta ask, when did you decide to go over to the dark side and teach at UNC as well? I taught there in 1981. Okay. In, in the summer of, of 81, there was a, a faculty member that had a stroke. And so they must have called around and oh, said... You make me feel bad now for asking that question. No, no, no. <laughs> let, let Skender do it. He'll do anything. And um, so I taught there that summer. Um, it was the summer that princes die and, and prince charles got married and, and what i remember about it dick vermeil was the coach of the philadelphia eagles back then okay and 
at summer practice, somebody asked him if he was going to watch the royal wedding. I mean, on every okay. newscast and every newspaper, there was just oodles of information mm -hmm. about the royal wedding. And he looked at the reporter and said, the royal what? <laughs> <laughs> so when I think of the summer of 81, that, for whatever reason, comes to my mind. And then I taught a couple evening classes there. And then it was 1997 where a woman got pregnant. I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> but she was, she was taking... You know, I, <laughs> She was taking the, the year off to you know, give birth and, and be with her kids. And I think they shopped the They must have offered the uh, courses to like 20 different faculty members. And, and you have to realize, you know, if you're at Stanford, if you're at Berkeley, if you know, you're at Texas, and somebody says, hey, would you like to come here and teach two courses yeah. and just sort of hang out? But that's not a real, shall we say, career uh, tight move. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. the people where you're leaving are probably going to be mad at you for walking away for a year. Right. So, anyway, they finally got around to calling me. The lady calls me over, the lady that was in charge, and she says, would like to offer you this position. And uh, I said, okay, I'll, I'd like to take it. She says, but I have to tell you, you weren't our first choice. And I said, I wasn't my wife's first choice either. <laughs> things have worked out. But, but the best part of, of that whole situation, my oldest son, that was the year that he was going to college. Okay. And for 18 years, I thought he's going to Duke. If he gets into Duke, he's going to Duke. Real good board scores, real good grades. He wasn't the joiner, the captain, the president. So I was like, you know, Charles, you may not get in. If you don't get in, it's okay. We still love you. But, and he applied in engineering. You know, because he had a, a math background and did, did real well. And when the letter came and, and said, you know, congratulations, you've been accepted, I could sense that he wasn't totally comfortable with that. And I'm thinking, hmm, what's going on here? Like, I'll send the money in. This is great. You know, this is a, a dream come true. Absolutely. He had a girlfriend, and his girlfriend was going to Carolina. She had also gotten into Duke, but okay. she sixth in the family, and they couldn't afford to send her to Duke, even with like partial aid and whatever. And she was going to Carolina, so my wife, after about a week of him saying nothing, said, "You better tell your dad what you're thinking." Mm -hmm. And he comes down and he says, "You know, I think there's a lot more possibilities in terms of the flexibleness of the course offerings at Carolina." <laughs> And I, looked, I said, Charles, if you're going there because of this little cupcake, I said, you're going to break up with her in October. I said, <laughs> He's, what, I said, 10 miles away anyway? Eight miles, yeah. Eight miles away. But he was like, nope, that's not it. And I said, okay, you know, I always you know, try to teach your kids to do. And one of the things that was in the back of my head was that he didn't want to go to Duke because he didn't want to get into a class and the teacher do the role and say, oh, you're C.J. Skender's kid. And I said, it doesn't happen in college. You know, I, I don't know anybody in, you know, different departments. You know, maybe if you, you know, took accounting or finance courses through the business school, you know, they'd know you were my kid, but they wouldn't give it a second thought. You're just another. Anyway, he decided to go to Carolina. So when this lady offered me the job at Carolina, <laughs> and she was a very, you know, I am woman type, you know, very... Um, and I just so I have to talk it over with somebody at home. Okay. And she thought that was great because she thought I was going to go home and, and tell my wife. <laughs> it wasn't my wife. It was my kid. I wanted to say, hey, yeah. if I take this job at Carolina, you know, are you going to you know, want to go to a different school or something? So it was, and I never told the woman that. I mean, I think she thought that, you know, I was, you know, really a, a Renaissance man and you know bounced everything off my wife and. I mean, I remember thinking, God, if I can make a couple extra bucks, you know, my <laughs> wife will be happy about that. <laughs> so, so I went there. Uh, that was the fall of 97. Okay. And then that November, there was a faculty member who was driving a van. Somebody flicks a cigarette out the window. It lands on the top of his van. He pulls over gets out of the van, you know, stands up on the side of the of the van to sort of flick it off, uh -huh. and he falls and hits the back of his head, and he dies. 
Wow. And 53 years old. Um, so they asked me to take his course. Seems to be a theme here. <laughs> um, each time, yeah, each time I went there. I mean, the first time it was a guy had a stroke. The second time it was a woman was having a baby, and yeah. then the third time it was this guy. And and what he used to teach were the very big sections, like four hundred students, which is. Were you about, not used to that at, originally? No, I never. I'd never done that. Yeah. I you know my my class sizes were. You know, 30, 40, 50 was probably the max. Yeah. I never had a big class like that. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't like about it is I didn't, I didn't know the students. Like, if you said who was in your class in the fall of 79, I could probably sit here and name, you know, 50 of the 54 people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would probably take me a while to jar a memory for some of them, but I always felt really good about knowing the students and something about their background. But when I started teaching those big courses, it was just like I would stand up front and talk. Mm-hmm. And and the way that they sort of sold it to me was, oh, you're reaching so many more people. <laughs> but y- you don't have that good feeling yeah, that yeah. you do yeah. when you're with a smaller class. Yeah. So, you know, I said, well, I'll, I'll teach that, but you got to give me some other class where I can feel good about myself. Because mm-hmm. I don't know any professor that really... If they're honest, feels good teaching 400 people at a yeah. time. Yeah, and so, so I've been I've been teaching there. Um, last last semester, I actually taught my 300th class at Duke, more classes at Duke than anywhere else, and, and that's you know there can't be there can't be a dozen other professors at Duke over you know since the, the university started mm-hmm. that have taught that many classes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, always used, I always used to say to the dean, it's quantity, not quality. <laughs> <laughs> so teaching at Duke, way better than teaching at North Carolina. That's just what I got out of that. Yeah, that's that's. I think that's. I was was that a question? The, no, okay. I think yeah. we answered yeah. ourselves right there. I don't think we. I like. We I don't like even need a response from them. Yeah, <laughs> I, I taught at North Carolina State for many years. The Wolfpack. Um, yeah, they. I, I mean. I'm still in touch with lots and lots of students mm-hmm. from there. I mean, and, and they, they said the same thing. You're going to the dark side. <laughs> you know, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Yeah, yeah. So do you still keep in touch with a lot of the students? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Um, it's funny, What's, interesting. Do you have, like, the most famous student, like, that you've ever taught? Reggie Love. Can you give me a background on Reggie Love? Here's Reggie Love played football and basketball here yeah. at Duke. Football and basketball. Both, both. Wow. He was on the national championship team in, um, he was Barack Obama's um, bodyguard, wow. right-hand man. That's crazy. Right. He just sent me this in the mail. I got this on Saturday. That's so um, sick. That is insane. That is so, so that's a book you authored. Wow. Thank you for being a great friend and mentor on this crazy journey. Go Duke. Reggie Love. That's sweet. So he he went to, after, it, he actually had a trial with the Green Bay Packers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it didn't, so he went, he went and worked for the president of the United States. Ah, so in, in terms of famous, yeah, he's, he's probably the most famous person. Some That's people's sweet. second choices are uh, way bigger than like some of our first choices. <laughs> <laughs> no, and he was such a nice, a nice yeah. guy. I mean, he was just, we, we, my son and I were going to a basketball game. This is in 2012. Duke was playing Virginia on a Thursday night because my daughter was getting married Saturday morning, mm-hmm. Saturday afternoon. And, um, I was teaching that night, and I was, you know, we were getting there late, and I said, you know, Charles, you know, just come to my classroom, we'll drive over together. And um, got there probably with, you know, 15 minutes to go in the first half. And as we're walking in, Reggie's walking out, and Reggie goes, hi, CJ. And my son was just flabbergasted. He said, he called you by name before you even acknowledged him. <laughs> and, and he was, you know, Barack's right-hand man. So that was that was sort of a neat thing. So he was the, the one, uh, you know, it's hard to just pick one. Yeah. Because there's, there's so many people yeah. that, um, I just had lunch last week with a woman 
taught her mother okay. um, in, in the early 1980s, and now she's a senior graduating from Duke, and, um, you know, that was kind of neat. Last spring, show you a picture of this. Too bad this isn't a video thing. But last spring, um, we're at dinner, and it was a family who I taught the mother and the father back in the 80s, and then all three kids here, um, <laughs> you know, while they were students here. That's crazy. And she always would send me um, brownies. Okay. At Christmas, I'd always get brownies and fudge, and so they took us out to dinner, and um, you know she says, "Here, we want to give you this box." And I'm like, "Oh, great, more brownies and fudge," because <laughs> last year when it came, and it was a oh look at there's Reggie Love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Last year, um, pulling pulling that up very well there. Gotta <laughs> give a shout out. <laughs> I guess the you know the day before Christmas, this stuff comes. And I guess, you know, we were having people over, mm -hmm. and maybe an hour, hour and a half later, uh, my wife says, where's the fudge and, and where's the brownies that we just got? And I said, what fudge and brownies? I had eaten the whole box. <laughs> <laughs> Probably didn't need yeah. to do that. But, but anyway, um, so they took us to dinner, and um, what they gave me was a, a plaque you know, a plaque that said, thanks for teaching, you know, the mother, the father, the three kids. Wow. Um, for teaching two generations of the short family is what, what it ultimately said. So. Does that hang in the well, office? Was, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's in. Do you mind if I read that out, the plaque? No. Okay. Um, so it says, C.J. Skender, a remarkable teacher, wonderful person, and true friend with deepest appreciation and gratitude for educating two complete generations of the short family. That's, that's interesting. That's brilliant, man. Uh, that <laughs> and then it lists all five of them. And then it says March 30th, 2017, definitely a Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> that's why there's a bow tie. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that was, that was really, that's, that's well, I hope children. Can, I hope you can teach my kids. And uh, there's the parents. And so we That's went awesome. for 10 years. They've been inviting us to come to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And you know, every summer, there's Al would like to, but we'll take a ride. And we finally went this past summer. They live across the street from where Jason Kidd lives. The, the yeah, basketball the coach, coach the used to coach the yeah, former. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, and he has a gate around his house and everything. And I'm taking my morning walk, and all of a sudden the gate's open. And so I'm like, oh, I'm going to get a picture of Jason Kidd. This will be so great. Well, it wasn't Jason Kidd. It was his pregnant wife. And you know, I, I showed my wife and, and Gigi the, um, the picture. We're like, oh, my God, she probably called the police. She thought somebody was stalking her. <laughs> like, you know, I'm fumbling to get the... The picture of the phone out. Yeah, I got it here somewhere. You didn't get Jason Kidd, but you got Jason Kidd's offspring in the oven. Right, yeah. It was, I think it was his eighth kid, actually. And uh, not all not all from the same for PC purposes. No, not all from the same woman. We can release that. Oh, well, just, you can cut it off. Right? Yeah. yeah. yeah what was wrong with that? Pick and choose and. Maybe the verbiage could have been better. Nah, don't worry about it, man. That's that's exactly what this should be. Nice Tesla in the background. You can say anything and then it's it's editable. Wow. That is some Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> Jason Kidd's wife. Yeah, she did. Yeah, she did. Um uh, Wow, okay, so that that was a lot there. I mean, so I'm gonna move into interesting slash boring territory depending on how the, how you look at it but having seen so many students having taught so much finance i mean what would be some like common mistakes and common strategies that you that you've employed and that you've seen students make with their personal finance what do you think goes wrong mostly uh, the most important thing that, mm -hmm. that you or anybody can do mm -hmm. is to force yourself they call it dollar cost averaging okay. to put $50, $100, $500, whatever you can afford, mm -hmm. into something every month. 
if you do that every month, okay. you're, you're going to lead the richest sort of life. What a lot of folks do mm -hmm. is they don't do it when they're 20. They don't do it when they're 30. They don't do it when they're 40. Now they're 50 years old. And it's like, oh, my God, I don't have anything yeah. saved up at yeah. this point. Um, we do a series of problems, time value of money mm -hmm, type mm -hmm. problems, Roth IRA problems mm -hmm. in class to try to reinforce how important that is. Mm -hmm. uh, that's probably the biggest mistake, not, not putting something aside. And it doesn't even really matter where. Right. I mean, you know, Franklin Funds, Fidelity, TIAA, CREF, Charles Schwab, whatever, mm -hmm. just just get it into some diversified, you know, some, and when you're young, yeah. more stocks than bonds. When you get older, you shift from uh, the stocks to something a little bit more safe. But but do that. And, mm -hmm. and, and over time, mm -hmm. that money will grow mm -hmm. leaps and bounds. And, and that's the biggest thing that I would, you know, advise people to do is just force yourself mm -hmm. Pay yourself first. That's what the financial planners say. That put that money aside and don't touch it. So that when you get to be fifty or sixty or whatever, it's like, yeah. hey, you know, I got a cushion. I'm not going to worry. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I love the people, but when I see you know seventy five year old people working at Target, you know, my first thought is, you know, nobody told them to start saving money for you know for when they're older right. and sometimes like how you know, how can i have got a family you force yourself to do that whatever you know it can be 25 dollars a month yeah. you know but but it just it fosters the habit of putting something aside yeah. and sacrificing mm -hmm. that's that's probably the biggest thing obviously students have taken risks and and sometimes the risks have paid off big time but other times you know there's that risk reward trade-off yeah. yeah you know you want to you want to take a shot? You know, take ten thousand dollars and go to Atlantic City and put it on Black Twenty Two. <laughs> They're doing something similar these days. I think it's called cryptocurrency now, though. Like, yeah, <laughs> the sports I, betting as well. But then, yeah, we we'll get into I, that. I just talked to. In fact, a student asked me a tax question that that they had Bitcoin mm -hmm. and they sold it like in December, and I was like, you know, it was it was a, you know, they made a uh, an awful lot of yeah, money. Yeah. You know, had they hold it another, held it another month or two, mm -hmm. you know, they wouldn't have. And he's like, do I have to pay tax on that? So when did you sell it? And he says, well, I think I sold it at the beginning of January. I says, that's smart. You know, mm -hmm. If you have a gain, sell it in January. If you yeah. have a loss, sell it in December. But, um, yeah, he was, he was ecstatic about how much he made. Okay. And it was just, you know, that took off. Yeah, yeah. Is it consistently going to, I mean... I don't know. If I, yeah, if I yeah. knew, I'd be, you know, sitting on some island somewhere, sipping <laughs> pina coladas with no salt. <laughs> but do you think the cryptocurrency market's here to stay? Like, do you think it's a? I, I think it's viable... always going to be around. I just don't know if it's going to be as lucrative as some folks are anticipating it's mm -hmm. going to be. That's, you know, and and I'm, you know, accounting and finance by nature, so I'm a little more conservative in, in thinking about that. I mean, I've had lots of students that have invested, you know, in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and, and have done okay. What you have to do is you have to be smart enough to sell, you know, if it goes up, you know, six, seven days in a row, you know, chances are it's going to go down at some point, yeah. too. Mm -hmm. so yeah. You, yeah. And, and who knows the exact formula for mm -hmm. that, but if you can... You know, if you can manage things and, you know, take your gains and take some of the money off the table and then invest again, I mean, that's a, a good approach. I would always say, before you start investing and doing those things, mm -hmm. make sure you've got a safety. Make sure you've got three months of cash set aside somewhere so that if, God forbid, you lose your job, yeah, you can live for three months or you can be looking for a job for three months. So yeah. the first thing is to have a safety fund. Second... Make sure that you have health insurance, and if you own a home, homeowners, homeowners insurance. That's important. Um, you know, again, a catastrophe hits and it can wipe you out. Mm -hmm. Make sure that you're saving for retirement. Make sure you're saving for your kids' education. Mm -hmm. You know, then when you have all that stuff covered, mm -hmm. you know, then it's time to invest. Time to invest and, and take risks and chances. Otherwise. You know, if you're if you're 
investing and trying to, to make money that way, chances are you're not putting that money aside yeah. for the retirement or for yourself mm -hmm. that you should be. So you have to find the right balance in, in that in that endeavor. I was always told to save 10 to 15% of your income. Do you agree with that yes. statement? Yeah. If you can, if, if when you get paid, you put 10% away and that goes into your retirement, you're going to lead the richest kind of life because you're going to have that, that cushion and that safety net. Mm -hmm. I mean, just think of it this way. You know, you're 60 years old, you're fed up with your job and you just want to leave. If you've got that sitting, you know, I can do that and, and you know, I can live for the rest of my life versus, you know what, I need this job for the next six years, eight years, ten years. It, it just gives you a little more flexibility and a little more confidence in yourself when you have that. And it's not if you get into the habit of doing it. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. Don't even look at it. Just throw it over it, It's hard to save 10 or 15%, particularly when you're young, because what you're going to go to New York or you're going to go to Chicago. And, and the prices of apartments are ridiculous. My middle son went to San Francisco. He was paying almost $5,000 a month for, you know, 800 square feet for a little, you know, he didn't buy it. He didn't own it. It was just renting this place. And I'm like, that, that was more than my first car for one month. And, and, and so what he's making, he has, to, you know, he has to pay the rent, you know, and then he has a couple kids. And I mean, so it's, it's hard to save in those cases, but I always try to foster that, that idea that if you will put money aside when you're young and just the 10% the, the is a great rule. Mm -hmm. you know, if you can do that, that's great. You know, forego a nice car, forego, you know, the fancy clothes, the dinners out and stuff until you've got that taken care of. Like don't, you know, don't sacrifice that to be able to do other stuff. That's, if I could give any advice. Yeah. For students, if you're going to work in a city that's near your home, live at home for a year or two. Mm -hmm. I, I used to go up to Lehigh when I worked uh, for Haskins and Sells, and they would always ask me to speak to the students. And every time, you know, they would say, what would you tell somebody? I said, if you're going, you know, if your parents live in Philadelphia, live with them for a year or two, because then you're going to have money for a down payment for a house, to buy a car, to buy a ring, whatever. You know, you don't have those things. Good hands. You don't have those things, um, you know, if you're, if you're scraping by, if you're barely getting by, or if you're... If you're borrowing, I'll tell you something that my wife and I did, and I don't know that, I'm, I'm certainly not bragging about this, but when we bought our first house, to get the down payment, we had five credit cards, went to the bank, and I maxed each one of them out. Mm -hmm. right, so I had like wow. you know, $12,000, $15,000. Yep, we got the down payment. Mm -hmm. um, wouldn't it have been nice you know, to have that money going in okay. and not having to do that. And I mean, it took a couple of years to pay, you know, to pay those things off. And it was like, that was, you know, when I think of stupid things I did, <laughs> you know, I had a lot of record albums, but I didn't have the cash <laughs> to put down on the house that we wanted to buy. So, yeah. Well, speaking of risky investments, your sports brain is basically an encyclopedia. And I want to know, I have to know if you've ever endeavored in sports betting. Yes. You have? Successful? Because I've tried and have been wildly unsuccessful. I think I can watch a game. <coughs> I can watch teams. Yeah. And, and you have runs. Yeah. Where, you know, it's luck as much as it is anything else. Exactly. That's when you live bet it. <laughs> <laughs> if you're playing with house money, it's a lot easier. Yeah, then you know if, if if you're playing with money, oh, I remember. I don't know if you'll be able to use this on your on your podcast. We can use everything today. Don't worry well, about it. It's this all, was probably 1981. Good. Pitt and Penn State were playing. Okay. Um, football or basketball? Football. Joe Paterno's coaching Joe at uh, Penn State. They're you know, terrific team. <clears throat> Dan Marino was the quarterback Pitt? at Pitt. Yeah. Penn State was favored by 14. I gave Pitt the 14. 
Pitt marches down the field and scores the first two touchdowns. It's 14 nothing in favor of Pitt. I'm down 28 points, mm -hmm. and I'm betting with milk money. And, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm betting with our, our mortgage payment. And, wow. And, and I start, you know, sipping beer. Yeah. <laughs> and get a little fluffy. My son, like two years old. Yeah. And he's sitting there with me. Well, Penn State went, and I think the final score was something like 41 to 14. They scored the next 41 unanswered. And each time Penn State would score, I was like so excited, you know, when they got 7 7, 14, yeah. 14 7, 14 14, 21 14, yeah. 28 14. I'm like, okay, we're in the clear. And then when they went ahead, every time they would score, I would like scream, shit on pit, <laughs> shit on pit. And part of it was because I was drinking. Part of it was just that I'm going to win this bet. Yeah, absolutely. That's the mindset. That was Saturday. Sunday, we turn on the TV. There's an NFL game. My son looks at the black and white screen and says, Look, Daddy, shit on pit. <laughs> I'm like, oh, man, I can't believe I said that in front of him. But that was so. So there have been some good, you know, there have been some good wins. There have been some bad beats, too. There have been some bad beats. Like, I, I can remember a guy, like, hitting a three-quarter court shot. I'm watching on TV, uh -huh. and the announcer says, a meaningless basket. Yeah. No. It's... Except they were ahead by nine, uh, and the line was ten. Yeah. You know, so now all of a sudden, and and that happens a lot. I mean. Talk about March Madness. That's what happens in March Madness. Talk about how, bad how beats. That Kansas game? That Kansas game? I think, I think it was like four and a half or something like that. Oh, and how about Nevada coming back from 22 down with 11 minutes to go? Oh, my gosh. And then the coach takes his shirt off in the Musselman, locker room. Muscleman, yeah, just how about if I take, Well, I remember his dad. His dad coached at Minnesota back. And, and, and the kid actually coached in the pros. He was yeah. the coach at um, uh, Golden State for a couple years. Really? In, in, in the, uh, you know, maybe 2004, 2005. And then he coached at Sacramento. So he's been the head coach at two pro at two pro teams before yeah. going to Nevada. I like Nevada because they have two kids, twins. Those twins? They the transferred twins? from NC State. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't yeah know they that. were at NC State. Those yeah, are good the, players. The, how did they, how did The NC city of State Cincinnati had the worst Sunday night I've ever seen. Uh, the whole state of Ohio. The whole state of Ohio. <laughs> the, the Ohio State hockey team lost, women's basketball lost, men's basketball lost. Yeah. Cincinnati lost, Xavier lost, yeah. the Ohio <laughs> State wrestling team Xavier lost. Xavier and Cincinnati didn't just lose. They choked. That, that's Atlanta Falcons-esque choke job that I'm glad that I can put them in that league. Wow. We, we have season <laughs> tickets to the Panthers games. Okay. And, and there's a guy that sits two rows in front of us. <laughs> he has a number 25 Carolina Panthers shirt. You know how you get the name like, yeah. sewn on the back? Yeah. The name that he has there is ATL, led by 25. <laughs> That's brutal. That's brutal. I'm still but, in recovery mode. <laughs> oh, well, that was, I mean. Uh, talk about betting that game. I lost big on that one. In 1981, I had a group of students. This is a, a Duke story for all time. I had a group of students mm -hmm. who bet on the Super, Super Bowl 15. Yeah. Eagles were playing. Um, Oakland Raiders. Yeah, Dick Vermeil's the coach of the Eagles. These kids were drinking the Kool-Aid, and everything was Eagles. They bet the Eagles to win the first quarter, the Eagles to win the second quarter, yeah. the Eagles to win the coin flip. They, they lost a few thousand dollars. Yeah. All right, like three or four you know, college students. And You're not eating for a couple of weeks with that. Yeah. So There have been some orange lunches uh, on this side of the room. <laughs> Duke was playing Carolina in the last game of the season. It was February 28th. It was Dean Smith's 50th birthday. And all the you know, Cameron crazies sing happy birthday to Dean and then immediately go into go to hell, Carolina, go to hell. <laughs> and Duke is trailing. It's a tie game with two seconds to go. Mm -hmm. Carolina's at the foul line shooting two. First one, swish. Second one, swish. Duke only had one timeout left, two seconds to go. Dean calls a timeout for Carolina to set his defense. Duke gets the ball, throws it to half court, timeout. 
And now Duke has the ball at half court, trailing by two. Kenny Denard's a senior. There, there was a problem yeah. in your class yeah. called the Kenny Denard company that's named after this guy. Time value? Well, Kenny Denard just did a podcast. If, if, I mean, Google it. It's hilarious. Okay. I mean, my, I belly laughed for an hour just listening <laughs> to his stories. But he's telling at the timeout that Coach K is designing this play for a sophomore, Chip England. He says, they're going to be expecting Gene Banks to, to get the ball. So we're going to use you as a decoy, Gene, and we're going to get the ball to to Chip England, and he's going to hit the shot in order to win in overtime. And, he, and Kenny Denard listens to this, and he's like, man, this is my senior game. Yeah. We're not getting the ball to Chip England. <laughs> Kenny Denard throws the ball to Banks. Banks hits like a 30-footer, you know, goes in. We win in overtime. That night, Springsteen plays Greensboro. 13 standing ovations. When he comes back the 13th time, the song he does is Devil with the Blue Dress on it because there were so many New Jersey kids in the audience. Before the game, these guys that lost the $1,000 betting on the Eagles sold these shirts that said Denard and Banks, so long and the But yeah, so those guys lost an incredible amount of money, but they made it back. And, and I wrote a problem for a, an undergraduate class I was teaching about how these guys were being, you know, chased by the mobs, and if they didn't pay up, their thumbs were going to be broken. And, you know, so it was a break-even problem about how many shirts did they need to sell to break even and to make a profit and ignoring taxes because they did. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, and if they gave, a real if they gave Banks and, and Denard, you know, 5% of the selling price yeah. and didn't tell the NCAA. So it was, it was kind of a funny thing the That's way it all cool. came down. But, yeah. All right, TJ, um, what I wanted to ask you about, apart from all that we've already spoken about, was uh, the new tax reform, A, and the tariffs that uh, we've all heard of. And, you know, they, these are just chaotic times and all of that. And a lot of people... In terms of personal finance and this tax reform and tariff, they keep saying something about the volatility index, uh, especially our man Sam here. So I just want you to touch upon all of these topics and what do you think is going on in the world. The tax reform is a good thing. I mean, you know, any time that you can reduce taxes, mm -hmm. that's that's positive for, for everybody that's involved. Now, there's a lot of studies that are like, well, it doesn't reduce it for everybody. Mm -hmm. Well, in the main, you know, you've lowered the rates, and, and so that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, I think that'll have positive impact. If you go back to the 80s, when Reagan did that, you know, 35 years ago, mm -hmm. things took off after that. Okay. So I, I think the tax reform, you know, was a good thing, mm -hmm. and I think that'll, that'll bear out. Mm -hmm. um, the tariffs, that, that's a different story, mm -hmm. um, only because... You know, now you're, you're influencing things um, in a way that may not benefit everybody or may not benefit us. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I take a, um, I, I, I'd say the tariffs I'm not as comfortable with mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As, as with the tax reform. Yeah. Tax yeah. reform I think is a good thing. Tariffs, we'll see how it plays out, but... Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, someone said it's easy to win a trade war. So it, I don't know if I personally agree with that, but what, what do you think? Is it bad for, I mean, it's, a lot of people say it's bad for business, the tariffs, but is it actually going to bring jobs back? And Well, that's what the, the purpose of it is. I okay. mean, that's why, that's why it was instituted to mm -hmm. say, hey, let's, you know, let's get things on our side now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you, when you institute a tariff, you know, it has, you know, talk to an economist, you know, it has, you know, supply and demand implications. Right, right. So that's a, that's a tough call. But have you seen something like this in the past where um, something so um, free trade oriented has been coupled with something that's very nationalistic in its nature? And how has that worked out? Yeah, if you... the, 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 the free, you know, let, let the free market be the free market and let everything follow that path. That's okay. Because the market's efficient. Okay. The, you know, supply and demand, people know mm -hmm. and, and countries know and businesses know. Um, I, you know, I always use the example, if you've got two products and they're sitting on a shelf and one is, is growing dust, why is it growing dust? You got a price too high. Mm 
If the other one is just, you know, you can't keep it in stock, mm -hmm. it's because it's priced too low. Mm -hmm. Th that same idea mm -hmm. transpires with respect to, you know, all of the, the tariffs and the trade agreements and all those sorts of things. You know, if, if you're going to do something that's going to hamper, you know, there, there's going to be consequences. Mm -hmm. and, and it may take, you know, couple of years to run through the system, but that would be my fear mm -hmm. with respect to that. I mean, the idea of it is like, yes, let's let's bring the jobs back. Right. But, you know, doing that is, is <coughs> if it works out, that's great. That's good, and yeah. I'll be there to applaud. Mm -hmm. But at this point, I'm not so sure that that's what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. But I mean, who does the tax reform help the most and who does it hurt the most? What, what do you, what do you, what's your opinion on that? It, it's going to, well, it's helping businesses because mm -hmm. the rates have been lowered, but at the same time, it's helping individuals mm -hmm. because the rates have been lowered there. And, you know, to me, I mean, taxes are big business, and there's a lot of people who make, you know, a, a nice income with respect to taxes. Just from the standpoint of ease, I think if they just said, we're going to take 10%, 15%, pick a number. I don't know the number. But if they would just take that out of your salary and be done with it. I mean, imagine, and, and I've talked to a lot of people, they spend hours. Or you hire an accountant and you say, here's my stuff. And then they spend hours going through that. Mm -hmm. um, couldn't that time be spent better elsewhere? I mean, if we're going to get a, a, essentially the same amount, why not just have a flat tax or... You pay so much. Uh, to me, that would make more sense. And that would be, you know, with all of the different deductions and exclusions and all of those things, it just becomes like most people don't even know what's going on with respect to their tax return. They couldn't tell you. You know, all they know is they're paying more or, or they're not paying more or they're getting. I used to do taxes, and, and the worst thing is when somebody owed money. They're mad at the tax preparer. And it's like, don't be mad at the tax preparer. Have more taken out of your check every month, every two weeks, whatever. <coughs> um, that's, you know, but, but people don't understand that. It's like, if I'm getting a refund, that's good. Well, I'm not sure that that's good. Because what it means is that you've been having too much withheld. So you could have used that. So there's all sorts of things like that that can be you know, argued back and forth. Mm -hmm. But I, I think the, the tax reform and everything associated it is a good thing. Okay. In general, okay. I think that you'll see that bear itself out. It's happened so many times in the past. Mm -hmm. Even when rates will rise in the future, you think that it's like... They have to be enacted into law to, yeah. to rise in the future. So I'd rather, I'd rather pay less now knowing that I'm going to have to pay more in the future, and that's just a time value money issue. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll pay more later. I'm cool with that. Um, as uh, you know, advice, do the Roth IRA thing. Because the Roth IRA, you pay the tax going in and then you're done. Mm -hmm. So if you can set up a Roth IRA, the money grows tax-free, number one. When you pull it out, you pull it out and you don't pay any tax. You don't have the minimum required distributions that you do with other IRAs at the age of 70 and, and thereafter. So that's, that's something that I would push. Okay. Um, that's the, the Roth IRA is one of the best things that has come down the pike ever. Right. I mean, that's just a nice, a nice thing. And that's where set aside your 10% or your 15%, and then you got that. And then that's yours forever. And yeah. it's, you know, it's a lot different pulling out, you know, $5,000 and not paying tax on it versus pulling out $5,000 knowing, hey, I'm going to have to pay 1500 you know, at some point in the future on this. Yeah. Just psychologically, it has that impact. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of like the, this is the, you know, the final thing I had to ask actually, it was in terms of the larger business landscape. And I speak also from Kevin's perspective, because these guys are doing a project on, it's called the Garrison Project, where they're trying to come up with like an investing tool, looking at companies and their historic data and all of that. So as a personal investor, when you look at a landscape like this, political, business, everything, what do you aim to do? Do you want to ride the volatility or do you want to play it safe? What's, I mean, what's that's going to depend on your age. You know, okay. somebody that's 60 years old is probably going to be more inclined to let's play it safe. <coughs> somebody in their 20s is like, hey, I'm going to roll the dice and see what happens. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and, and that's why a portfolio would be structured so that, you know, at your age, you're going to have 80, 85 percent in, in equities, mm -hmm. in stocks. 
and 10 or 15 percent in bonds versus somebody my age it's going to be probably closer to 50 50 mm -hmm. somebody older that's going to have less in, in the way of stocks i mean i i just read an article where a woman pulled everything out she's like 66 years old and she said you know what i have enough and i'm not going to you know be looking at my phone to see if yeah. the market's going up or down i'm just going to put it into a you know, a CD into mm -hmm. you know something very safe, and know that I have that much, mm -hmm. okay. and and, and yeah. so that was her strategy. I don't know that a financial planner would tell you that's the best strategy because she's not going to keep up with inflation, mm -hmm. but she's figuring, hey, I'm not going to live long enough where I'm going to run out of money, so right. this is fine, and she doesn't have that added stress. So everybody's different. You 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 have to look at you know what position you're in mm -hmm. when you do that. What's the age? What's the risk factor? And, mm -hmm. So those are all things that have to enter into that decision. It's not just a cut-and-dry decision for everybody. I used to teach executive ed courses, and you know people would like to look at one ratio and make a decision that took care of everything. It just didn't happen. You, know, you had to look at lots of ratios. You had to look at lots of comparisons before you could come up with a, a conclusion that you believed in. And that's what we're trying to do with this project that we're working on. We're looking at bunch of different ratios, price-to-earning ratios, debt-equity ratios, and trying to determine like some sort of uh, weighted scale that you can rate a stock price on or a stock on uh, and give it a, give it a buy-sell rating is kind of the goal to this project. But mm, that's... we're focusing on uh, a, a variety of metrics, so it's not focused on one. It's what our uh, that's, that's a good approach. Yeah. I mean, that's the way to, to do it. Um, and then, you know, test it out and see how it works. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. Do you have any specific metrics that you look at when you evaluate a company? The PE ratio. Yeah. Always look at the that. secret yeah. sauce. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, McDonald's. You got that yeah. secret sauce. Um, it's the, sauce. The, the Szechuan sauce. The Szechuan sauce. The operating cash flow. Okay. That's, you know, if I had to pick, you know, sometimes somebody said, what, what number, what one number would you look at? I'm looking at the operating cash flow. And I want to see it positive, and I want to see it increasing, and I want to see it in you know flowing in that direction, because cash is king. If there that cash number, if that cash number is there, yeah. I mean, when when decisions are made, you know, what's the cash impact? I'm going to make a decision because I'm going to save from paying taxes. Cash. It all goes back to to cash. Well, yeah. this has been great. This yeah, been thanks. Fantastic. Thanks for coming out. Glad Thank we could you. finally get you here. Didn't yeah. cough that much. <laughs> good thing. It was a truly an honor. You can edit. You can edit the shit on pit out of the. Now we. I think we might even keep that. Pit eat shit. That's like the way I like to do it. Hey guys, just wanted to thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. This podcast was produced by the MEM Finance Club in conjunction with Sal Mascarenas. We want to give a special shout out to the MEM PDC. Also, all rights are reserved, so please don't try anything funny. I will see you here at the next episode. Please remember, bulls make money, bears make money, and pigs, <laughs> you know what happens. <laughs>